Hello everyone, this is Sakib at Tennis with an Accent. Uh, as we are in the wilderness that's uh, off-season, uh, I would like to share an interview that I recorded uh, just after the US Open with uh, uh, known tennis writer Ben Rothenberg. Uh, it is more of a timeless chat just uh, to get his opinions on the tennis journalism world and how he got into it. Uh, give it a listen. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. Today we have a special guest. No introduction needed, actually I don't think even I can properly introduce, but it's Ben Rothenberg, uh, one of the more known names in tennis journalism. If American tennis journalism was to be put in the same criteria as the big four or big five, his name would definitely appear. Other four could be, you know, anyone's guess. Welcome, Ben. Uh, thank you. That's, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much for having me, Sakib. Yeah, anytime. So, yeah, let's get right into it. Uh, uh, we live in a world, you know, which is dominated by social media. That's the reason, I mean, someone like me can get in touch with someone like you who, you know, covers tennis and has a slightly busier, you know, schedule for these kind of things. So how important is social media for a journalist's uh, toolkit in these times? And what aspects excite you? And on the flip side, are there certain aspects of social media that scare you? Oh, that's, that's a great broad question to start with. Um, I think that a lot of it excites me. Just I think it's a really great way. I think a lot of people think of journalists using social media mostly to talk and to transmit their own thoughts and to tweet themselves. But I think most of the value that I get out of social media is just by listening and by following people and scrolling through my timeline. And I try to follow a pretty diverse set of accounts within tennis, a lot of, you know, fan accounts, a lot of sort of non-traditional media folk as well and not just players. And so I try to have, a, you know, sort of ears on the ground as much as possible within reason. I always try to follow less than a thousand people. So you'll see my follower account is always like, 999 or 998 which is probably looks pretty stupid a lot of times but um so i just i just try to use it mostly as a, as a you know information gathering thing and you see breaking news come across and you get it very quickly and so just from that consumer sort of side it's, it's very useful for finding out stories and grabbing people occasionally message you directly and say hey you should take a look at this thing that's going on which could be interesting which can be anything from you know uh a player with a cool backstory to uh a match with, with suspicious, suspicious betting patterns that I wouldn't have picked up on my own because I don't, you know, bet or watch the betting markets directly myself pretty much ever. Um, so, so that, for that side, it's really good at giving me ideas and giving me leads and, and tips on what sort of stuff I should be looking at in the sport and to also just sort of take the temperature of how general consumers of a sport are feeling about things, which can be, you know, accurate or sometimes I think not accurate if, if, if people are misconstruing or misperceiving some sort of, you know, debate or controversy in the sport. It also lets me know where where there's been sort of a, a communication failure and on what side um that can be. And then and then as a and then as a journalist, yeah, it, it's helpful for me putting out my stuff there and, and building a, a follower base. I try to tweet things that are non terrible most of the time and do a, a mix of uh you know, sort of factoids and things that I think will be interesting on Twitter and try to time them around big matches and stuff like that. I think I've figured out you know, sort of how to do that pretty well over my, uh, yikes, like seven or eight years now of being on Twitter. I think I joined in 2009. So it's, it's been a long time on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, if you have more specific questions, that's, that's my main social network for sure is Twitter. Um, I don't use the other ones too much for, for work. Okay. And I think tennis Twitter is pretty, uh, pretty known. I think everyone who is part of the tennis ecosystem lives there and has its own space. 
So, I mean, your answer is pretty uh, informative in its own way. Uh, it's a one-two punch. You know, people are launching their pieces and pointing to their podcasts and still social commentary is going on. And that being said, uh, just like any, anyone, you know, does it ever happen that you tweeted something or uh, wish you wouldn't have tweeted something? Uh, does it always, you know, in hindsight, you know, we all do that. Oh, but, sure. Uh, oh, sure. No, I mean, Twitter, the, the dangerous thing about Twitter that it's so easy to post something out there and it, you, you can sort of lose sight of the fact that it can feel like the method, the actual method of publishing on Twitter just feels like sending any normal text message sometimes or instant message if you're on your, on your computer. And it actually, in my case, reaches, you know, thousands of people, which I have to, I have to be conscious of keeping, you know, foremost in my mind that I do have a, a platform and a, uh, there's responsibility that comes with that platform, you know, um, and, I, and I think I mostly do a pretty mindful job of that, but it's something that I have to keep, you know, keep conscious of for sure that it's not a, a casual thing at this point in my uh, career, Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, but yeah, but there certainly are, I'm sure there's tweets I've regretted that are, you know, vaguely, you know, flippant or un, just unnecessary or inane. And I try not to delete things generally. Uh, I think that's sort of bad form. I usually only delete things when there's like a typo or something like that or a factual error if I get a, you know, a score wrong in a match or something like that. Um, but generally I try to try to let those live up there in perpetuity for better or for worse and apologize or walk them back as, uh, as necessary. Well, that's good. I mean, uh, it's, uh, uh let's come back to Twitter. Uh, let's actually backtrack now. Uh, this is a question, you know, um, you know, I, I ask everyone who comes to this podcast, uh, what's the Ben Rothenberg journey to the Ben Rothenberg, you know, the journalist? How did, what's the association with tennis? Uh, how did it all start? Who were your heroes? And, uh, how do you land up where you are? Yes, yeah, so I was just, just a normal sort of tennis fan. Um, I got, I think I got more mostly into the sport as I remember, as I sort of remember it during the 1997 U.S. Open when Venus Williams made the final and she was unseated. And then through this miraculous run through the tournament, and I watched, I think maybe just her quarterfinal, semifinal, and final, and that just got me into the into women's tennis and into the Williams sisters. And then I I played tennis a little bit just on a very recreational level, and I'd gone a couple times to the Leg Mason tournament, which was what now the City Open in Washington D.C., my hometown. Um, there, so I'd seen Michael Chang and people like that, so I knew about tennis, and, and I think the Williams sisters were the first sort of personalities that really got me engaged in the sport and following it more year-round, which really was just the, mostly the majors uh, at the beginning, and then occasionally other tournaments would be on TV, Miami or maybe San Diego or Los Angeles at the time or New Haven. And then um, I, I remained a fan of it through high school and and in college started doing some blogging, and eventually after college I'd done a little bit of blogging on the NHL, which is my other main sport that I played in like I was a much better hockey player than tennis player. I was never all that good a tennis player. Um and then uh eventually decided to start blogging about tennis and it uh it more or less clicked and, and people in tennis were, were pretty good back then about giving me credentials and access to uh smaller events in the world of tennis, world team tennis, things like that. And uh that eventually long story short kinda of got me a a foothold in the world that I was able to uh build off of. Yeah, I mean, uh, we are all fans, and uh, in a very small, 
experience that I can relate is uh, I was in Miami Open the first time. They were kind enough to throw mm-hmm. a credential my way. You know, totally a scholarship case, I think. I, you know, I didn't deserve it, but it still let mm-hmm. me in. And when I sat across from some of these players I've seen on TV, you know, it was uh, quite a different experience. And when Federer walked in, you know, not to be a fanboy, you know, I was very nervous that I might just screw up the question that I had rehearsed for the last two hours. <laughs> so that being said, you live this, mm-hmm. you know, as a fan. Uh, does sometimes how hard it is to stay objective when you're talking to your favorite players and still doing a job? Is the balancing act, you know, it's got normal or it never gets normal? Yeah, I think I think that the the objectivity part of it, I think, is pretty easy for me at this point, um, just because I've been around them all so much, and some of them are easier to deal with than others, for sure, just on a on a sort of colleague level. But I think that most of my sort of fan tendencies and my original preferences, I don't think, I think those go away with sort of surprising quickness once you're in the job, and you're just sort of, or if you're pulling for anything, you're pulling for the more interesting story, whatever that winds up being, um, which is usually, which can move around the different players quite a bit. Um, there are some, I mean, it is, it is, I was thinking about this, um, this weekend, once during the US Open, when Sloane Stevens won the title, that she was a player who I've sort of, whose career been fairly concurrent with my own. I mean, I sort of started covering the sport more full-time uh, beginning of 2012, which is sort of when she started making uh, her way on the tour and sort of first broke into top 50, I think. And so with her, she was never someone who I related to as being, oh, I, I you know, grew up watching you on TV. And so I've always felt more sort of on a never remotely, you know, um, intim- I never idolized her or was, you know, watched her, was intimidated by her when I first, you know, saw her name appearing in a press conference or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. Compared to the players who were in that stage for me, you know, the older ones who've been around since, you know, I was in high school with the Williams sisters, Federer at all. Uh, Sharapova is probably in that category too. Maybe Murray and Djokovic a little bit also. They were ones who I sort of had larger perceptions of as, um, and other players who have retired since, like, you know, Leighton Hewitt, Tommy Haas, Andy Roddick. Um, those are players who I've maybe had more sort of uh, awe with dealing with um, than the newer ones who are coming up. So there, there's a bit of a, a sort of gap in, for me getting the players. And I, I think I'm pretty much, I don't, I don't feel nervous with anybody now, but it still mm-hmm. is a sort of different feeling, I think, when it's somebody who you did grow up watching versus somebody who is well younger than, than, uh, than you. Uh, I'm 30, so I'm about roughly in the middle of where the players are now. Probably yeah. they're, get, they're getting younger than me now, um, but towards getting older. So yeah, yeah, I'm at a, 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 a weird, I'm at a weird juncture when most of my favorites are now a few years younger than me. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so you said something about picking an interesting story. So you you know do a lot of uh, you know you contribute a lot for the New York Times. So mm-hmm. so how do you go about your stories? Uh, do you have full uh, Leverage, you know, what are you going to cover, or is there any influence from the editorial staff? Uh, what's the balancing act there? There's a mix. I think I, I, I definitely a mix. I think I mostly come up with my own stories, but there are certain times when um, at a tournament, some days you just get assigned to doing just a general result story, which is pretty straightforward. And like, okay, you're going to write the wrap of match results, which we do less than we used to for sure at the times, even um, writing sort of regular match stories and game stories before the you know, semifinals or finals of the Grand Slam doesn't happen all that much for us anymore. Um, so, so then sometimes you'd be like, oh, you're just going to write about the day four matches at the French Open today. So that's where we get assigned, and it wouldn't have necessarily too much um, uh, say in what happened. Although I would get to pick, you know, 
or get to have some say in what the lead most important match that day was if there was if there wasn't an upset, you know, let's say that clearly was the big story and trying to figure out what the uh what's the most interesting narrative or or what sort of interesting player or storyline to base the match story around. But but generally for the most part I, I come into a tournament with a with a list of ideas for people that I want to write about or topics that I want to write about and we try to find time uh that lines up with the match schedule uh to be able to do that. And then other other times it's just we go through um the order of play the night before. I'm trying to think of an example of this. Like for example, this at the US Open this year, I looked and saw there was a girl from Burundi who was playing the junior tournament. And that's obviously a part of the world that was pretty much zero tennis representation before and she had a brother who played, but before that, uh sub Saharan Africa uh, it's not a well represented part in tennis at all. So just seeing her on the schedule, that was a relatively short decision, like, oh, we should write something on her, you know, and, and the next day that's just what you do. Um, so there's just sort of being adaptable to that and trying to find interesting things that uh, will be good stories that hopefully other people aren't doing. And I think that's one of the cool things about my sort of position at the Times is that uh, Chris Clary is there, who's a full-time staffer, and has been there a long time. Uh, David Waldstein is another guy who's a full-time staffer, uh, who we three of us have covered a couple of slams now as a trio this, uh, this year. And it's rotated through a few different people, but that's been the sort of core group this year. And they, those guys, for the most part, take this sort of high, this sort of headline type matches. You know, they'll cover the Federer Nadal story for the day when they're both playing on the same day. Um, which leaves me a bit more freedom to do something a bit more outside the uh the mainstream coverage which i which i enjoy it keeps me keeps it more interesting for me for sure okay another uh transition back to social media uh mm-hmm. you have a strong following goes without saying i think if you you know quantify you know people who follow you it's a huge for a tennis journalist people react to your reporting sometimes in agreement and a lot of times you know there's strong harsh words used uh, like players uh, show mental fortitude and toughness you think uh, a journalist sometimes has to exercise those, uh, you know, those features because sometimes does the criticism ever become too personal? How do you block it? Oh, I mean, there certainly are, there's certain, you do certainly have to have, sadly, I think a, a pretty thick skin to be a, a person expressing almost anything on the internet these days, especially on Twitter. And it's, it's bizarre. I have friends who sometimes just sort of casually stumble into my Twitter and are just sort of amazed at the level of vitriol and, and anger on tennis Twitter. But you wouldn't mm-hmm. think we would have that. Um, and just sort of the name calling that happens pretty, pretty, uh, casually on there. Um, so it is something that I've sort of developed a, a thick skin for. Occasionally I guess things bother me, but not usually too much. And if there's people who seem like repeat offenders, I can mute them on Twitter and not have to see them again. Um, yeah. I prefer that to blocking because I feel like blocking sometimes people wear the badge of honor. They're like, oh yeah, ha, ha, I got you, you block me. But with muting, they don't even really know they've been muted. They just keep shouting into the internet, and you never hear it. So that's sort of my preferred way of dealing with that. But I try not to. I, I, if people are respectfully disagreeing with things, I certainly never get remotely uh, offended by that. I don't think. Okay, and uh, you know, it goes without saying, uh, your stand on five sets with three sets is something that <laughs> triggers a lot of uh, yeah. uh, a lot of opinions and. Uh, I respectfully stand on the other side of the forum. Uh, so do you ever uh, see a great five-set match, and do you second-guess your stance, or it's pretty much it's pretty clear uh, where you're coming from? No, I think I'm pretty set on my beliefs on that by now. Um, there are great five-set matches for sure, and, and then people 
you know, tweeted me during um, Del Potro team, for example, at the U.S. Open, uh, saying, oh, well, you're quiet now, and I was covering some other match. So people, so that's one of the annoying things about Twitter, I will say, is when people see me not tweeting about something and assume that it, they were trying to read into my silence when actually <laughs> I'm probably just, like, eating lunch or something and just not on my phone at that moment or whatever the case may be. In that Del Potro team match, I did actually wind up writing a whole article about that match. So it wasn't like I was ignoring it. But at the time, people were like, uh, you're, you know, you're stunned into silence by this great best of five tennis. Um, so, so no, I mean, I, I do think that overall, I just think best of five is a very cumbersome format for the sort of modern age and, and how physical and intense matches are. And the average set of men's tennis is so much longer now than it was the best of five format was created than even was probably in the 90s and 2000s when they were faster you know, sort of serving volley based sets of tennis. Now it's just so much a more grueling physical sport and you see the wear and tear it takes on the guys. Now if, if these guys are all sort of this generation is all aging you saw five of the top 11 I think missed the US Open. Um, a lot of them might be might have been willing to give it a shot had it been a best of three tournament like Andy Murray comes to mind. He did come to sight and practice if he honestly wasn't you know, completely hobbled but just over, over best of five, is, it's not enough. And so I think I think best of five long term will uh, force players to be more selective in the scheduling, which means fewer people get to see them, and it uh, just adds a lot of excess to matches. And you don't get as many fun decisive moments. I think the best moments of tennis matches are when you're in a deciding set, or when someone is only one step from uh, uh, one step from elimination. And a lot of times in best of five, that doesn't happen as often. Pretty, it's much rarer, obviously, to get to a fifth set in a best-of-five match than to get to a third set in a best-of-three. Okay, so you don't think uh, there are other things that have broken the sport? This is uh, just takes the cake for you? or It's a big uh, one. It, it, it's something that – I think that it's something that a lot of people within tennis really agree with. I mean, a lot of sort of like the people who are on the business side of it. And that's not the main motivation. I mean, I don't get – paid based on what the TV ratings are, but I can tell you that, you know, people within the ATP, who are not the players, but the organizers of the ATP point to specify as being something holding back the sport and making it tougher to get good television deals for, because you can have a best of three match that lasts 80 minutes or one that lasts five hours, and it's very tough to sort of plan that on TV and to have a broadcaster be willing to make the commitment to that sort of uh, unknowability of match length. Um, so it's not, it's not, maybe, I don't know if it's the biggest, my biggest issue in tennis, but I sort of have enjoyed, um, being the, the mascot for it as it, as it's turned out. Um, I didn't, I, there are others who agree with me for sure, uh, but it's, I, I, I've, I'm willing to own it as my sort of hill I'm trying to die on in terms of tennis battles. Why not? No, that's fine. Good to hear you're holding to your form, which is good. Uh, Again, on the more sticking to the journalism side of things, uh, do you think there's a tendency for you know uh, professional journalists, especially in tennis, that sometimes uh, a journalist will stick out their neck for maybe a cause or someone, and not regretfully, but sometimes you're fighting a battle for someone else. Does that happen? Um, I'll give an example. I'm not I'm not quite sure what you're saying. I mean, is this like five set or like, uh, you know, oh. going for, for a player or for a tournament? You know, tournament shouldn't move sometimes. You know, these, uh, these discussions start from a point where, you know, they become redundant and then, uh, people end up taking sides. Yeah, I mean, it, you have to choose what you're, how you're going to engage on things. I mean, I guess one that, um, the most sort of famous case of this in the last couple of years has been the Sharapova, uh, ban for her mm-hmm. positive test for meldonium. 
And there were parts of that case that I was occasionally, you know, outspoken about on Twitter. Um, there were some people who thought that she would sort of suggest that she knew it was illegal and kept taking it, thinking they would give her a break when she tested positive, which I thought was idiotic. Mm-hmm. Um, because why would she risk that? And it clearly didn't work. Um, but there are other times, but I've also been on both sides of it. Today. Even just today on Twitter, I was criticizing her for some terrible answer she gave Katie Couric when she was asked yet again if she sort of found a replacement for meldonium to fix whatever, all the reasons she listed as why it was a legitimate thing for her to take her, you know, heart rate and her diabetes or whatever else she listed. And she answered that really ham-handedly and, and didn't give a convincing sort of reply at all. Um, and so... I think I'll fall on, on both sides of that. But other people, I, I'm probably more of a loudmouth on Twitter than a lot of people, uh, mm-hmm. for better or worse, probably for both. I mean, it, it, it has moments where it might make me more sort of engaging person to follow, but it also might turn a lot of people off. Uh, so there's a balance there to find, and it's going to be, you're not going to please everything, anyone, everyone with any tweet. Uh, so yeah, so I think some people certainly are more um, judiciously quiet on Twitter than, uh, than I am, but I just, can't help myself a lot of times. Yeah, I think that that's kind of uh, the beauty of Twitter. You know, if you have opinions and you want to share them and you know back them up, you know, in a way. You know, obviously, journalists do that, so it you know it makes for some good good dialogue. Uh, yeah, I find a great example. I mean, with Sharapova, I, I probably had Kyrgios in mind because he polarizes you know a lot of conversations. Yeah, I don't want to use the name, but a great example regardless. No, Kyrgios is certainly a good example for sure. Sort of, I mean, his. His is interesting because I, I feel like I'm less inclined to talk about him as much as others because I feel like with him, I don't think there's any knowable possible right and wrong in any part of it. I think people read into Curios a lot of different feelings they have about a lot of different things, and he changes. His, he's so moody and different that it, it change, you can have you can have a, a great day followed by a terrible day, and it's not sort of. I don't think it's a useful use of energy to sort of ride all the highs and lows that he presents. Um, so um, I, he's not someone who I think maybe I have, but I, I'm sure I have commented on curious various highs and lows. But something that that look back at it now in the abstract, it's probably not the most useful uh, Twitter topic to get the most uh, invested in. Well, obviously, it is something people have a lot of strong opinions about. Yeah, I, I think he's good for the game. I mean, as long as you know the game takes precedence, yeah, uh, everything is a sideshow. So yeah, yeah, no, I, I think he's absolutely good for the sport. He's an incredibly dynamic personality and player to have, and it would be in tennis's best interest for him to sustain a career, and hopefully he can keep it up. All right. Uh, the goal is to keep this interview more like timeless, so if anybody can even you know listen to this in December or January next year, you know these topics are you know generic. But I still mm-hmm. gonna I'm still gonna use you know I'm tempted a couple of uh, recent events. One is uh you know Sloane Stevens when uh, how does this win uh, you know put tennis in the you know American sports ecosystem, you know, where does this rank and what does it do for tennis? I I'm not sure what exactly I think it's too early to know exactly what her win will mean for tennis. But I think it should be a big opportunity to have a new American champion breaking through at the US Open. I mean it's it's a it's a great place to have sort of a star born to cross over. And the US Open gets a lot of attention within um American media, and she's she's a very easily relatable player. Uh, she did it by, you know, in the sort of four Americans in the semifinals, and she beat Venus Williams, which is a name that even, you know, non-tennis fans all know, and so that gives her sort of a lot of immediate credibility. So I think that that's, it's a really good moment, hopefully, for the sport that they can capitalize on. Um, I don't know if she's going to turn into 
you know, the next number one player or she's going to stay in this form uh, for the next year or she'll be, a, you know, even a top, steadily top ten player. We don't know. Um, it's not enough data really yet from this really good summer she's had to know if she'll sustain it or not. But I think that the opportunity for someone to break through as an American at the U.S. Open uh, is tough to beat. You know, in sports, you know, we live in the recency effect, you know. Uh, and after Australian Open and Indian Wells, rightfully so, it, it was about Federer. And, you know, like football, every Sunday the narrative changes. And now, rightfully so, it's about Nadal. Uh, so as a reporter, how, you know, tricky it is to objectively go through these, you know, uh, these tournament wins and uh, still not make predictions based on, you know, uh, the most recent result. And because, you know, this, the GOAT debate is, you know, has come back to life. Yeah. Uh, how do you stay out of this and, you know, make a make a balanced uh, narrative? Yeah, I will say in terms of issues that I do and don't engage on, I don't think I get too much into the GOAT debate. Um, first of all, they're just both still active players, and, and it's sort of trying to measure, you know, how much snow will be in a blizzard while it's still snowing. You mm-hmm. might wait till it's over and then, and then measure and, and get a better sense of it. And, and I, I think it's a fun it's a fun discussion to have for sure. I mean, I understand why it's appealing to a lot of people to talk about greatest ever. It's an obvious topic, and there's arguments to be made for both guys. You know, obviously Federer has more Grand Slams and maybe a little bit more of a, a spread of where he's won his um, across the three majors at least, uh, not French Open. And it's all sort of been a real has dominated the French Open. Has got ten there out of his total sixteen. Um, so that's different, and he's obviously won a lot against Federer, but now Federer's won four in a row against him to close that gap. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a fine debate to have, um, and I certainly do see a lot of columns coming out uh, in this past week since the U.S. Open saying, oh, you know, Federer, uh, Nadal is now the GOAT, and here's why. Um, you know, okay. still three behind on total Grand Slams. Um, so I, I think that's a little I, – I don't, I don't think I'd be tempted to write that sort of thing. That seems like a bit, you know, running with it too much. I understand the temptation to do that. Sure. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, in terms of debating when people are going to win and, and not, I think that sometimes we just underestimate how difficult it is for a lot of people to keep winning and sustain greatness. Um, like when Djokovic hit 11 a couple of years ago, let's say, in terms of total grand slams, or even 12 at the beginning of 2016, um, it was very easy, to, or even when he won the French Open, it was easy to say, oh, yeah, he'll absolutely, you know, pass 17 and Federer. Why wouldn't he? There's no, he absolutely will hit momentum. He's still just turning, you know, 29. It's inevitable. But it's still very, very hard to win five more Grand Slams. And I think people assume that uh, with a lot of, you know, people. Serena certainly gotten this a lot, too. And when she hit 18, people thought, oh, she'll certainly pass, you know, Margaret Court in 24. But still, a huge step. It's still six Grand Slams. Um, so maybe sometimes people underestimate how tough it is. And, and, and Serena and Federer and it all, throw all of them in there, and Djokovic, why not? They all, well, any one of them might have already won his or her last Grand Slam. Odds are one of them has already won their last Grand Slam. We don't know which one, but odds they all win again is, are low. And I think we should just sort of respect how um, non-inevitable it is to to keep your keep your greatness going. And I think Djokovic has been a really good example of that over the past uh, 12 months with him really falling off the rails from where he had been. All right. So, Ben, uh, you can wrap this up with uh, some fun, you know, a rapid-fire round I have. It's going to be three quick questions. Okay. Tennis questions, and you don't really have to think. Just, you know, shoot 
for the answers. Okay. So, end of 2018, who's ranked higher, uh, Federer, Nadal, or Djokovic? Hmm. Um. <laughs> um. I will say Djokovic. Okay. I, th- I, I think he's. I think he has to come back up. All right. Uh, we'll be back in touch then. Okay. Who will win a major next year? Uh, Pliskova, Maddie Keys, Sharapova, or none of them? I thought Pliskova was going to win a major this year. So I will pick Pliskova, although she's had a disappointing summer. I think ever since the French Open, uh, has been disappointing. Her serve isn't quite as lethal, but I just, I just really like her game. She's, her technique is so clean. I think it has to translate to a major pretty soon and she can contend. At three of them, and her, she made the same finals of the, of the French, which should be her worst. So I'll pick Pliskova. Right, and uh, last but not the least, uh, which top player on either side, ATP or WTA, hangs it up end of 2018? End of 2018. Oh, this is back. I will say end of 2018. I mean, I don't want it to be anybody. I would like to see all these all these great stars. You know, stick around as long as possible, um, and, and you know, play. And, and they and they have been like there's been so few retirements of top players. Um, if I had to guess, I will say uh, Sharapova. That counts as, a, as an answer. I don't think Sharapova has too many more years left in her, and, and she sort of hinted at that in her uh, new book that comes out that she had planned to retire at the end of this year before her her ban. So I don't think she has probably too much uh, longer in her. Hey, that's a great and bold answer. Thank you, Ben Rothenberg. It was uh, awesome talking to you. Uh, yeah, thanks for having ho- me. Hopefully, we can host you again at Tennyson Accent, you know, down the road. Thank for you. sure.